Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 13, Earth Rising, Part 1. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me on this podcast and on my other show, The Space Shot. December is a very special time in space history. A half century ago this year, Apollo 8 lifted off from Kennedy Space Center on the first crewed mission using the Saturn V rocket. Earlier this December, I was lucky enough to hear some Apollo astronauts and flight controllers talk at the Cosmosphere's Earth Rising event. I also was able to have a few other interactions with the astronauts that are memories that I'm going to cherish forever, and that event just really truly was one of the most remarkable nights of my life. I'm glad I got to experience it with friends, family, and now I get to experience it again with all of you, so I hope you enjoy the audio from my time at Earthrising. In today's episode, we're starting off with a conversation with some of the space hipsters that were in Hutchinson for Earthrising. I'm going to leave the audio as is for the panel, with no interruptions. I am going to break about halfway through to make sure the podcast episode doesn't run too long, that way it's not a massive download for all of you, so be sure to join us for part two. Now, let's head to Hutchinson and chat with some space hipsters. Uh, my name is Amy Young. I'm from the Space Station Museum in Nevada, California, okay. the San Francisco area. Cool. Hi, Christopher Boyd, just a random fan. All right. <laughs> Not with anybody. Well, you are, too. You're our Space Hipster moderator. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Lois Honeycutt. Um, and Space exploration fan and moderator or admin of one of the space hipster groups. So. Perfect. Uh, and I'm Kevin Spencer, just a space enthusiast from Minneapolis, Indiana, and I run one little uh, Facebook group called Space Flight Blunders and Greatness. Martin Lawler, uh, and amazingly enough, the same age as NASA. So <laughs> I've been loving this stuff since before I could remember remembering. Hi, Jonathan Ward, uh, author of three books about space, and I actually did work on the International Space Station when it was Space Station Freedom cool. back in the 1980s. Hi, John Wisnup, San Antonio, Texas, longtime space enthusiast. Susan Franklin, uh, Northern Virginia, uh, astronautical engineer. <laughs> Lloyd Franklin, also Northern Virginia, uh, you know, aerospace engineer with Boeing, and of course, some growing up and, and watching the first spacewalk. I mean, always been cool. Cool. All right, and uh, I'm Amy Lynn, um, in school for uh, aerospace and um, space enthusiast and aspiring potential astronaut. Heck yeah. yeah. And then everybody knows me because this is my podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've been hanging out here at the Cosmosphere today. Uh, we just got done with a tour at Spaceworks. What did you guys think of that? Amazing. Very cool. Can we just pull up a, I don't know, sleeping bag. And, yeah. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> more you all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enough toys keep us busy for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so many stories. Yeah. Was anybody had a favorite? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a Mariner 4 uh, spacecraft, a spare, flight yes. spare, that was just sitting upstairs on, on top of rack. It's intact in everything you know, that was like one of the, the first interplanetary spacecraft to go to Mars it's a beautiful thing there's some hidden treasures for sure yeah. it's the, the first time I went there it was just kind of like where do I even begin so I, I totally get that so we, we saw the consoles today the Moker consoles what do you guys think of that very they cool. They were lovely. Oh, very impressive. Cool. I can almost yeah. smell the fried chicken. Yeah. <laughs> it they was feel like very they, retro. They, they feel like what I space artifacts like that, and what I got from being in that room, as I experienced this in our museum, is um, that they're almost like people. So I'm a caretaker for that artifact. I treat it like it's a person, and I could hear them and feel them. 
interacting with yeah. me. Yeah. That's that's what happens to me when I'm around the space artifacts. I feel the whole story and the personality coming through. It's funny along those lines they had actually uncovered a I mean by uncovered I mean all the outsides were off of it, an SR seventy one engine. You're looking at something that is most likely flown, you know, seventy thousand feet over Russia, been shot at, uh, served served the U.S. and in, in the time it was there. Now it's sitting there, just you know, to be restored and looked at. It's 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 so much history and just that piece of hardware sitting in that place. It's overwhelming. Well, the history of how they're made too. That's right. Yeah. The amount of hours that go into, like, for me, I just, I just got into manufacturing for the aerospace industry, and the amount of hours that go into making something as small as a washer, sometimes it's there's a story for every part. So I'm glad you guys got to all come along and mm -hmm. experience that. So let's talk a little bit about the museum. You've all had a chance to go through Hall of Space, then. Yeah. Yes. yes. Favorites. Artifact from down there? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> Mercury Atlas One. The or the remains of it, to be more specific. <laughs> uh, yeah, that uh, didn't have a laser escape tower and quite unmanned, which was a good thing because yeah. it blew up. Yeah. It blew up spectacularly, and there are pieces of what was a Mercury spacecraft <laughs> yeah. down there. Just all this kaboomy goodness. Just shredded titanium. You don't see that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> this is what an A41 looks like when you subject it to a lot of force. For me, that, that makes me think about those, those Mercury astronauts as they stood there and watched the Mercury atlases and the Mercury redstones blow up oh, right. repeatedly. John Glenn's yeah. line, the, you yeah, guys are going to fix that, aren't you? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the failure rate was something like 19 or 20 percent, and yet they figured that it was going to get fixed in time for them to, to sit mm -hmm. out there and trust that the escape system was going to work for them, and that, that to me is just incredible bravery. When you see when you see a shredded remains or something like that, it just, hey, two more launches, uh, Mercury and Mercury Atlas. Actually, well, that was Mercury Atlas one. Was yes. yeah. yeah. So it was five more, more than before yeah. John Glenn went up on one. But yeah. My, I've been coming. A lot of these people are here for the first time, which is really cool. I've been coming to the um, to Cosmosphere since I, at least annually since about 2010. Okay. So I feel like I am an old friend here. My kid came to space sure. camp here a couple of times, and so um, coming here. But there are a couple of things that I always make sure I visit when I hear when I'm here. I mean, they just sort of speak to me. And the one thing that I just always sort of stand there and just think about um, when I see Werner von Braun and Korolev's slide rules displayed next to each other, you just kind of stand there and you think about the work that those little pieces of wood did um, and, and you know, and, and in opposition to each other, really. I mean, in the hands that, that were in opposition to each other and to see them together like that is really poignant. It's one of my favorite little corners of the museum. I always just have to stand there and, and I know it's coming, but I always stand, you know, I always have that intake of breath, like, oh, there they are. You know? I agree. Yeah. I have two. I have uh, the film canisters from every mission that y'all have displayed with their autograph of each one of the astronauts from that mission. And also a big fan of the Apollo 12 mission, the scoop from Surveyor yeah. 3. Mm. That, that was, that opened up all the Apollo missions on Apollo 12. That was the first pinpoint landing. And to know that that Surveyor scoop was sitting there for so long and then Apollo 12 landed it, brought it back, that, that means a lot to me. Oh, I missed that. I, yeah. I was too enraptured with the Surveyor art, you know, the spacecraft that's also uh, was on the floor there near the planetarium entrance. I yeah, or where we had the book reading today. And like just sat around and just looked at that for hours and hours and hours. I mean, you know, just beautiful piece of hardware. So, you know, when JPL's, you know, frugality to get something to work merged with its tech with its aesthetics and you start seeing things that not only looked wonderful but flew beautifully. I think we kinda of have to mention your star attraction, the Apollo thirteen command module Odyssey. The uh, you know, just yeah. the, of course that story is so well known and yet every time you come here you speak to someone about it, they share a memory of it, uh, you talk about what your Space Works division did in, in bringing it back. Uh, and I think that sort of imbibes a personality. It's it's like it's 
you could you could just feel all of the contributors, all the the people whose whose skills and heart went into that, and it's uh, it's hard not to feel it every time you you see that. Yeah, yeah I I. Um I was gonna say, I, it's hard to pick one out. I love the film Catcher, love the slide rules. Um, for me personally, the Apollo 13 exhibit, and if I had to pick one part of it, I would say it was Jim Lovell's suit. Um, because for me personally, my brother is older than me, and he's the one that got me into liking space, and Jim Lovell is his hero. So, you know, I look at that, and knowing what happened, um, on that mission, that's just really pulls me into the story very much. Yeah. And and the other thing I wanted to mention is, I love the timeline layout of the museum. I've only seen one other museum and one temporary exhibit in a museum that followed a timeline that well, and it, it's it's really good that that it does that, and especially that it starts off with the V2, which is a very controversial thing. I think it's very controversial in, in some ways, the exhibit is, because there's a lot of people who had no idea of its involvement. So. Like the collection of the Russian artifacts, mm -hmm. just because it's not something you see at too many other uh, space museums. Yeah. So it's very cool to see both um, the influence of the Americans and the Russians. My favorite one down there is the, the Luna 2 impactor. Little softball size thing yeah. there, um, and that's that's one of the things. There's something for everybody, no matter where you're walking through sure. on the timeline. There's little hidden pieces of history. So, anybody else have a favorite? Well, we're, we're we're looking forward to the all day tomorrow down there. Yeah, <laughs> having that chance. Good, good. Um, you know, tonight we're going to the gala. Is are everybody going to the gala here? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, very good. Any thoughts about that before we close up here? I want to see Jack Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to him. Is Jack here? Because we haven't seen him. I haven't. I I don't know yet, to be honest. Okay. Right. So I'm excited. Excited. Uh, I just came from ASF. Okay. But I'm still excited over it. any chance I get to mingle with these people and their families. I get I get butterflies. I'm excited to for Jim Lovell. He's somebody I've always wanted to meet and shake sand i have not had the chance to do that yet in any of the different space events i've been to so he's always been a huge personal hero of mine so looking forward to meeting him i always call these chances to swim with the astronauts <laughs> and uh, it's always amazing because you, you realize how remarkable the group of people these are from the astronauts and the people in operations the moker people uh, how smart, how enthusiastic they are about everything they do. I mean, even when they joke, <laughs> whatever, it's always, it, it's an amazing thing to meet these people after all these years and still have that gleam of, uh, that gleam of wonder and inspiration in their eyes. And they love telling you these stories. And it's, I, I hope, I hope it can, you know, it continues as long as it can. So. I think that's something even for me, like my girlfriend and I were chatting about that, how it was, I, you, you get the twinkle in your eye when you're walking around places like this. So. I was hoping to meet Glenn Lilly, but unfortunately he was unable to attend. But um, yeah, yeah, I would uh, probably would talk his ear off. I'd love to just, <laughs> uh, maybe ask us wonderful, I've never met a, moon, a moonwalker before or anything, but, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to some of the, uh, directors and the engineers. There's several of them that I have not met before that don't usually come out to Space Fest and some of the astronaut shows and things like that. So I think you've got a, done a really good job of sort of pulling in some people that, uh, you know, have been unsung heroes. Sure. Um, you know, kind of nice to, to see them here. You know, I went to, a, I guess my first Space Fest was, in, was Space Fest 2. And that was probably more than 10 years ago at this point now. And I was thinking that's probably the last chance I'm going to have to meet some of these people. And I'm really glad that it didn't work out that way because yeah. I got hooked from the very first right. time. That's what I went to. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Jack Schmidt's high on my list. I've never met him before. Okay. He was supposed to have come to a couple of things that I was going to go to and that, or that I went to and that he didn't, he didn't come with a 
last minute. And so Still like really Dave helping. Scott and me. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, I, it's it's always a thrill to meet these folks. They're not getting any younger, and every time every time could be the last time you, you right. see these guys publicly. And so it's just an honor to to get a chance to to see them one more time. Sure. Well, thank thank you everybody for coming on. This is cool. Hope we can have some of you on again in the future. Can I just can I just say sure, one thing? Sure. Um, is that I was the contact person for the um, the museum to reach out to the space hipsters mm-hmm. to um, help arrange the the tour of SpaceWorks and some of the opportunities we've had. And I mean, the Cosmosphere has just been wonderful through this process, and that this group is extremely grateful for the opportunity that you all have extended to us to uh, be part of this. Yeah. yeah. I had a lot of fun meeting all the space hipsters. If you haven't been out to the Cosmosphere yet and you're a member of the space hipsters group, you're probably going to get some grief until you're able to make it out there. It truly is a great museum to go to, which is why I volunteer even though I'm located in Colorado. Next up, we're going to hear from NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. He kicked off the Earthrising event, and after that, we're just going to let the audio play through from that event. Enjoy. What an amazing honor to be here. Uh, I want to start by saying this isn't my first time to the Cosmosphere. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in Arlington, Texas, between Dallas and Fort Worth. <laughs> we got some Texans here up there. Um, and every summer we would drive up to South Dakota, where my grandparents lived. And on that journey from Texas to South Dakota, we would stop in Kansas. And on at least one occasion, and if I remember right, two, uh, we stopped at the Cosmosphere, and I remember it having an, a significant impact on my life. Now as an adult uh, in charge of NASA, I have a Boy Scout myself, my 12-year-old, my and it wasn't too long ago, about two years ago, I had the opportunity to spend the night in the Cosmosphere <laughs> for what they called a camp in, where my son Walker was able to get the engineering merit badge and the robotics merit badge for the Boy Scouts of America. <laughs> Notice I said that I spent the night, I did not sleep, to be very clear. I know that my son had a great time, and we very much appreciate what the Cosmosphere is and how important it is, not just to the community here in Kansas, but now my family lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I know there's a number of Tulsans here as well. This is an important capability for our region to inspire that next generation in STEM. I want to say thank you to Roger Marshall for being here and your support, uh, being on the science committee. And I want to give an extra amount of appreciation um, to Senator Jerry Moran, who has become a very dear friend of mine. And I want to be really clear. Um, He doesn't just say these things, he really believes them. He's putting his money where his mouth is. Um, and, and he's doing what he can to make sure that our space agency stays as strong as it ever has been. And he's making sure that as he does that, Kansas is involved. Uh, as the person who runs NASA, I can tell you that um, Senator Moran is the chairman of the Commerce, Justice, Science, and Appropriations Committee, the key there being science which means he writes the checks that we spend. And so when he says, hey, why don't you come to Kansas? The answer is yes, I will be there. And of course, we had a great time today visiting NIAR and Wichita State University, and of course now the Cosmosphere and having a great experience at this dinner. Today we're gonna celebrate Apollo 8. And what an amazing history this is. You think back to what NASA is as an agency and who we are, you know, back during Apollo 8, I, I, uh, I'm reminded by Robert Curson's book, um, Rocket Men, of Apollo 6. Apollo 6 was an uncrewed mission, but when it launched parts of the spacecraft, that first stage fell off. And the second stage of that Saturn rocket, two of the five engines didn't even light. And that command module that went into Earth orbit which had to be reignited over and over and over again in order to get to the moon, to enter the orbit of the moon, to change orbits at the moon, to leave lunar orbit, that single engine on that command module for Apollo 8 
had to be able to be reignited over and over again. And on Apollo 6, when we tested it, it failed to reignite even once. The spacecraft barely made it to orbit. It certainly didn't get fast enough to test the heat shield at the velocity necessary to come back from the moon. And while we didn't declare it as an agency, it was never declared a failure. Many people at NASA considered Apollo 6 a failure. The next day, an intelligence report comes in saying that the Soviet Union is likely to go to the moon with humans, orbit the moon in a free return trajectory by the end of the year. That was the day after Apollo 6. NASA had some decisions to make, some very serious decisions. And some very brave people, courageous people, including people who flew on Apollo 8, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, made a decision that, in fact, we were going to go to the moon before the end of the year, even after that failure. This Apollo 6 challenge happened in August. And not just these brave men, but so many other people at NASA said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the year. In a matter of four months, we're going to go to the moon. Imagine making that decision after seeing what happened on Apollo 6, only this time, this mission is going to be crewed. And of course, our brave astronauts not only made it to the moon, but they made it to the moon in a way that everybody on the planet saw. And I think this is the important thing that a lot of people miss about NASA. When our astronauts keep the mic, and they created their broadcast to send their message back to Earth on Christmas Eve. Imagine this. Not only were they going to go in four months and take this risk, but they were going to go when there was an opportunity it could wreck Christmas, not just for our country, but for the entire world. And they still made the very courageous decision to do it. And when they were at the moon, in orbit around the moon, they kicked the mic and they made a broadcast and one out of every four people on the planet either saw or heard that broadcast live. And when you think about what that meant to the world. You know, on the other side of the world, there was this nation called the Soviet Union, where Christmas was illegal. And when they keep the mic and they created that broadcast, they read from the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 1 through Genesis 1 9. And millions and millions of people behind the Iron Curtain might have, for the first time, had a different perception of the United States of America. When you think about what national power is, it's not just about strength and might, it's about soft power. It's about changing the perceptions of the world towards the United States in a way that can be very positive not just for at that moment, but for generations to come. And when we think about Apollo 8 and how it transformed the world, and what NASA is and what NASA has done, that idea that we can communicate behind the Iron Curtain to millions of people a message about Christmas and goodwill here on Earth, what an amazing celebration this is tonight. I want to say one more thing, and that is this. We're not here just to commemorate the past, but we're going forward. We're going forward to the moon. People say we're going back to the moon. Yeah, we're not going back, we're going forward to the moon. What does that mean we're going forward to the moon? Well, this time we have capabilities that we didn't have in the 1960s. We have the ability to reuse rockets. In other words, we can drive down the cost and increase the access to space in ways that even 10 years ago, it was unimaginable. <clears throat> and, and not just the rockets, but we're interested in having reusable tugs that get from Earth orbit to lunar orbit. And having a reusable command module in orbit around the moon for 15 years and reusable landers that go back and forth to the surface of the moon. Roger Marshall just mentioned that this time when we go to the moon, we're going to stay. That's what the president has told me. Space Policy Directive 1 from the President of the United States says to go to the moon sustainably, building into the architecture reusability and having international partners and commercial partners. There are no, now more space agencies on the face of the planet than ever before. 
Space Policy Directive 1 says we're going to utilize the resources of the moon. In 2008 and 2009, we discovered that there's hundreds of billions of tons of water ice on the surface of the moon. Water ice represents air to breathe. It represents water to drink, and it represents rocket fuel. Hydrogen and oxygen, the same rocket fuel that powered the space shuttles, the same rocket fuel that will power the space launch system, the largest, most powerful rocket ever built, taller than the Statue of Liberty that's going to deliver a reasonable command. That's the Alabama delegation. Uh, And then, friends, we're going to take it to Mars. And we're going to have an architecture where we can go to Mars. And friends, it all started, it all started with those brave men who, on December 21st, 1968, decided that we could, in fact, get to the moon. And on Christmas Eve, they made that historic broadcast. What an amazing opportunity. Thank you for having me. It's great to be in Hutchinson, Kansas. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. And as Jim Remar comes up to the podium to start our program this evening, I'd like to say thank you to Jim for setting the Cosmosphere on a course that is going to make it even greater than ever. We have an amazing team there, and Jim leads it in a way that I've never witnessed in, I'm not going to tell you how many careers I've had, or how many years I've had a career, but it's uh, a phenomenal to work with him. And we'd like for you now to remember what this evening is all about. So who decided I was supposed to follow Administrator Brunstein? <laughs> <clears throat> thank you, Mimi, and good evening. I want to thank Administrator Bradstein, Congressman Marshall, and Senator Moran. On behalf of the Cosmosphere staff, Governing Board, and Foundation Board, welcome. I also want to thank our staff and our volunteers, and especially Mimi Meredith. Our staff, our volunteers, and their tireless effort have allowed this evening to happen. Tonight, we celebrate the golden anniversary of a historic achievement. When Michael Collins told the crew, Apollo 8, you are go for TOI. Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders set out upon what President John Kennedy called the most hazardous, dangerous, and greatest adventure upon which mankind has ever embarked. Apollo 8 was the first human space flight to leave Earth's orbit. Was the first to be captured by and escape from the gravitational field of another celestial body. And the first crewed voyage to return to Earth. The crew members became the first humans to directly see the far side of the moon. It paved the way for the first human landing on the moon on July 20th in 1969. But it took sacrifice to get there. In January of 1967, a fire had swept through the first Apollo capsule intended for space. During what was meant to be a simple ground test, the fire was caused by a mix of bad wiring and pure oxygen atmosphere. And because the main hatch mechanism was difficult to open, three astronauts lost their lives in horrible circumstances. The pain of that event is still felt 51 years later. It was an avoidable and an unexpected body blow for the Apollo program. One that could have easily proven fatal. This was a moment 
when the whole Apollo program could have folded. Instead, 1968 for NASA was a year of recovery and rapid regrouping. NASA rose to the challenge of honoring Kennedy's mandate of reaching the moon prior to the end of the decade. Hundreds of design changes were made to the spacecraft. The main spacecraft was redesigned. Flammable materials were eliminated from its interior, and the hatch was made easy to open. The first success of this new phase was Apollo 7, where a three-person crew tested the now much-revised main spacecraft, the CSM Command Service Module. This flew without any real issue in Earth orbit in 1968. The second and perhaps most important success of that time was Apollo 8. Ironically, Apollo 8 was not intended to originally go to the moon. Born from an idea developed by George Lowe, Apollo 8 was a mission with a very serious purpose. The Cold War was in full swing, and the U.S. and Soviet Union were engaged in a space race, which the U.S. space program was dedicated to and looked to be in peril of losing. Worse, 1968 was a year of turmoil and disillusionment, with riots in Paris and many major American cities, political assassinations, and the continuing war in Vietnam. The U.S. government saw Apollo 8 as a way of redeeming a very bad year. The success of Apollo 8 saved 1968. It saved the Apollo program. It allowed the U.S. to beat the Soviets, and it allowed the U.S. to fulfill Kennedy's challenge. Only seven months later, Apollo 11 reached the surface of the moon. 50 years ago, Apollo 8 achieved history, paving the way for future exploration. This past Monday, November 26, we witnessed history again. The Mars Insight Lander, using entry technology from the Apollo program, became just the eighth spacecraft to successfully land on the Martian surface. Insight traveled over 300 million miles through space and then another NASA first, InSight, was followed by two suitcase-sized spacecraft called Cube Satellites. These are the first CubeSats to fly into deep space. These satellites shared data from InSight when the lander entered the Martian atmosphere. The primary purpose of InSight will be to study the interior of Mars, which will provide NASA with valuable science as NASA prepares to send astronauts forward to the moon and later to Mars. To quote the NASA administrator, the best of NASA is yet to come. I almost forgot one more Apollo 8 mission to highlight. During that historic mission, perhaps the greatest accomplishment was that the crew of Apollo 8 confirmed that yes, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> now I'd like to introduce Robert Kersey. Robert is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including his 2004 debut, Shadow Batters, the true story of two Americans who discovered a World War II German U-boat sunk 60 miles off the coast of New Jersey. Kersey began his career as an attorney, graduating from Harvard Law School and practicing real estate law. Kirsten's professional writing career began at the Chicago Sun-Times, where he started as a data editor. In 2000, Esquire published My Favorite Teacher, his first magazine story, which became a finalist for a National Magazine Award. He moved from the Sun-Times to Chicago Magazine, then to Esquire, where he won a National Magazine Award and was a contributing editor for years. His other New York Times bestsellers include Crashing Through 2007, Pirate Hunters 2015, and his latest Rocket Man 2018, which tells the astonishing story of Apollo 8, mankind's first journey to the moon. Robert lives in Chicago. 
Tonight, Robert and I have the pleasure of conducting a question and answer with our honored guests. Robert, good evening, and I invite you up to the chairs. Flying to the moon and even landing on the moon 
same for the landing itself. We could scout landing sites, we could learn about deep space communication, write the software, perfect the trajectories, everything. We could keep the program moving. If we did it fast enough, we might even stand a chance of beating the Soviets to getting the first humans there. So George Hill brought this idea back to Chris Kraft, laid it out, Kraft again fell off his couch. He could not believe the danger and the risk that Lowe was proposing. It basically came down to this. George Lowe wanted to go not in a year or a year and a half, which was the typical planning period for a space flight. He wanted to go in four months, in 16 weeks, unheard of. Nothing was ready, Kraft reminded him. Everything still had to be done. Things had to be built. Uh, calculations still had to be perfected. The simulators weren't even ready to go. 16 weeks? That was just the start of the trouble. The Saturn V, the only rocket powerful enough to deliver humans to the moon, as Jim had pointed out, had only flown twice, both times unmanned. The second of those tests, catastrophic, and some of its failures. Now, Lowe was proposing that the third ever, only, third only ever flight of the Saturn V would go with three men who were fathers and husbands and wouldn't go just 100 miles into Earth orbit, or even 853 miles above the Earth, which was the current world altitude record, but 240,000 miles away to our most ancient companion, the moon. If that's not bad enough, they're going to go without the lunar module. Remember, that's the whole idea behind Lowe's epiphany. But the lunar module has a very special secondary function, and that is as a backup engine. So if anything goes wrong with the primary engine, that Apollo 8 is going to take to the moon, there's going to be very big trouble for the astronauts, especially if they're already in lunar orbit. They'll never be able to get out. They could crash into the lunar surface, remain in lunar orbit for thousands of years, and fly off into eternal solar orbit. That engine has to work, and it has to work perfectly. Maybe even worst of all, they're going to go at the end of this terrible year, 1968, separate from the warriors making the worst year in our country's history. Still, Chris Kraft thinks, if, this, if we could pull this off, think of what this means. We could keep the President's promise to the country alive, and we have an outside chance of beating the Soviets to the moon. And what could be better than that? So they call Jim's predecessor, Jim Webb, who's in Vienna at a conference. They call him on a secure line. They don't want the Soviets hearing this. And they pitch the plan to him. And he listens to them, and then he says, and this is a direct quote, are you out of your minds? <laughs> and, he, and he goes through the risks, and he reminds him of another risk. He says, if anything happens to these men, anything, poets, lovers, no one will ever look at the moon the same again. The people at NASA had not thought of that, but it was true also of Christmas, because of course, those plan called for the astronauts to be in the lunar orbit on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at the end of the worst year in our country's history. So that's how the, uh, Plan got started what the context was. And with that, if I could ask some of the players in Apollo 8 some questions, um, I'd be grateful for the answers. Jim Lovell. The crew of Apollo 8 had very different reactions to the change in mission from an Earth orbital flight to a lunar orbital flight. Frank Borman, as soon as he heard they had a chance to go to the moon, was all for it. He had joined NASA for a single reason that was to defeat the Soviets in space, and this was his chance. Bill Anders at first was very discouraged. He believed he had an 80% chance of walking on the moon, but now that the lunar lunar module was taken out, he believed his chances had slipped to zero. What was your reaction when Frank came back from Houston and said he'd be going to the moon? I was delighted. <laughs> to go. 
I ended up uh, training for four missions, uh, and eight was by far the hardest for two reasons, not just the uh, abbreviated time, but my uh, previous experience leading up to my crew assignment was uh, to be an expert and spend a lot of time with the uh, development test of the lunar module. So here all at once I was on a flight and it didn't have a lunar module. So I had to kind of do double time uh, to get up to speed on the, the vehicle we actually got flying and be in that, in that position. So that was, it was, it was really a, uh, the toughest uh, crew assignment I had to really feel I was ready to go when we got ready to go. Well, I've always wanted to ask a backup Apollo crew member, um, do you secretly wish for something to go awry with the primary? <laughs> no, maybe a flu bug or something like that so you could, you could go. And would you have been excited to fly in Apollo 8? Certainly, yeah. I think that's true of every mission I have trained for. Hoping somebody would uh, have a problem. Because you trained you train equally. And it was kind of disappointing uh, each of the three backups I had that now we'll go see somebody else fly, even if you've done the same amount of work uh, to get there. Jerry, Jerry Boston, what did you think was the single greatest technical challenge facing the new Apollo 8 mission? What concerned you the most? Well, when uh, Chris grabbed uh, first, uh, he called me, Arnie Aldridge, and uh, uh, Cliff Charles wrote from King Cranston's office on Friday afternoon in early August and said, George Lowe wants to go to the moon in the next flight picture of the top of And we all said, you've got to be crazy. And he said, don't say that. Uh, that's what I said first of all. But think about it. Uh, this was Friday afternoon. Come back and tell me Monday morning if you do it or not. So it was a big challenge. So we went back Monday morning. In the meantime, I had, uh, with Chris's uh, permission, had enlisted uh, Chuck Dietrich and Ed uh, Charlie Parker. And over the weekend, we figured out what we could do. And Arnie did the same thing with assistance guys. We went back to Chris on Monday morning and said, yes, we can do it. A particular part that you believed would prove most challenging? Well, the real challenge was to get all of the, uh, uh, the software into the real-time computer complex and the uh, uh, displays that we would need because we weren't planning to, to do a lunar mission for, for uh, several months uh, after that. So that was the, the real challenge was to speed up all of that, uh, that work. And, uh, uh, we also had to develop procedures we had to It was very short amount of time. And one of the key questions was, will you have enough time not only to, uh, to do the procedures, mission rules, but to do the simulations that you need to do? Because we usually had, you know, four or five months of simulations on most missions. Here, we, we had just a couple of months at most. I'll jump you through. Um, there was some measure of secrecy about Apollo 8, even within uh, the ranks at NASA. Do you remember the secrecy element and how well uh, people were able to keep the mission a secret, if at all? <laughs> well, yeah, I think the guys who work on the mission never said much about it. But if you could hear the rumors in the hallway, you know, hey, you guys want to move, we would never admit that that was the case. <laughs> and Chuck, what worried you uh, most about compressing this uh, training time and planning time? Well, we had a lot of agreements we had to make with the crews on what kind of information we are going to pass them. And we had never done a high-speed reentry before. We had to figure out how to do that. Uh, we never had done that transition course correction coming back from the moon. Never did an LOI. So all, all those, that day that we were going to pass the crew, uh, we had a meeting called Mission Technique, which was run by uh, the old Temple. And that was meeting, the crew would come, and, and the flight analyst guys would come, and we would figure out how we're going to talk to each other, what kind of procedures we're going to use, and what kind of information we pass to do these maneuvers. Uh, Frank Van Rensselaer, tell us about the Saturn V, because it seemed to me with um, the problems that were experienced on Apollo 6, this seemed a, a great risk um, to go forward. Were you confident that the Saturn V could be made 
um, safe and perfectly functioning uh, in just that short time leading up to the December launch. Well, frankly, uh, you know, a lot of things went wrong on 206, as, uh, as you've heard. We had two engines out on the second stage, and it was supposed to uh, go uh, tumble. supposed to not have control authority. Fortunately, the booster on that uh, mission watched the actual command and the vehicle back to the actual command things, and they could see they were converging. And even though Mr. Wolf said it was supposed to pull, and we had a toggle switch. And we looked at the board, and I mean, man flight, and we actually boarded. Man flight to toggle switch is just like lightning. Okay. Anyway, Bob looked at that and he said, this thing is controlled. And so then there was a lot of discussion about the range safety officer. You know, the range safety officer, if it went into the aggregate gate, if it was concerned that the vehicle was going to go out of control and break up and pieces of land in Africa, you know, it was supposed to. Range safety officer was supposed to work. Well, anyway, uh, all that went, went through. We could see things were working fine. And after the mission, we got thinking, of course, you know, the third stage didn't restart either. And we found out all that problem was uh, stemmed from a public, you know, an oscillation issue. So, yes, I was pretty confident when we got to uh, um, to um, our, our follow flight here, follow uh, eight. Yeah, I think things were under control. The guys at Marshall Space Flight Center who designed and built all this, and you know, Dr. Bob Brown was the leader of that. They really looked at it hard and did a lot of testing in a short time frame. So although we were pretty confident, I must say we did an awful lot of work training for probably and I think the crew did all that course and so we did more on that mission than I think we've done on any of them. But I think we were really ready, we were pretty confident. And of course, fortunately, things went very well. Thanks for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are crucial to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review in iTunes. It helps more people find out about the show, and you can help us spread the word. We'll be back in 2019 with new episodes, more history, more science, and more interviews. Thanks for joining us in 2018, and we look forward to having you back next year. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnix.